I've talked to survivors uh, over the years, so many times, not just for this job, but because of my own family, right. all of my grandparents being Holocaust survivors. These are stories that I've been hearing my whole life, but I had never heard until now the fear and the urgency in the voices of survivors about what is happening in the world. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters. Every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Brought to you by Hackensack Meridian Health. Visit our partner site, NBCNewYork.com slash HealthU, to help you on your health journey. Hackensack Meridian Health. Life years ahead. So in recent days, we've had some sobering, but also in my view, exceptional reporting and reflection on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And it just makes sense that we take some time to talk about it, in particular because as we listen to the survivors who, as we all know, are dwindling year by year, they seem to express an anxiety and fear in this particular year that perhaps we haven't heard as much. So. I brought on Adam Cooperstein, his return appearance on the Debrief podcast. Oddly enough, when you visited before, we were kind of talking about similar issues in terms of anti-Semitism, current anti-Semitism, but you delivered a couple of uh, special reports this week that obviously literally were personal for you, but also broadly speaking as we reflect on this. So I wanted you to come on and talk to you. Yeah, thank you. And it does come together yeah. with this milestone anniversary. It, it just happens to be 75. It could have been that this was happening in America and the world uh, at 72 or 76, but it happens to be this Fair milestone point. anniversary where the attention is on Auschwitz, where there was a huge reunion in Poland uh, to honor this anniversary of the liberation. And at the same time, a rise in anti-Semitism and a rise in denial. And so we heard from these survivors and we got to interview some locally, those pieces you talked about, and, and New York is where the majority of Holocaust survivors in the U.S. live in this tri-state area. And so we are fortunate enough to have many of them still alive in their 80s and 90s. That number is shrinking fast, but we're able to connect with them and get that first-person account. And I've talked to survivors uh, over the years, so many times, not just for this job, but because of my own family, right. all of my grandparents being Holocaust survivors. These are stories that I've been hearing my whole life, but I had never heard until now the fear and the urgency in the voices of survivors about what is happening in the world. This woman we spoke to who survived the Holocaust, I met with her in the Bronx and, and she says to me, six million Jews died, millions of other people died, and nothing was learned? Did we really not get the message after the horrors that we experienced? And it's been well documented now for decades. How can we not figure out how to be more humane to each other? I feel it's my duty to do it. I, I definitely feel that I have to do that for my husband and for all those who died. I don't want it to be forgotten. And she's not saying that it's exactly happening again, but there's some similarities in the world right now that has a lot of Jews living in some fear. Many people may not be as aware in Europe where there are these strong personalities uh, running governments and there has been a rise in nationalism, the same kind of talk, the same kinds of seeds that many people feel they saw in the late 30s and 40s ahead of Hitler. Yeah, and, and 
it's it's not just when you think back to the Holocaust. I think it's it's a hard thing to grasp in America because you you hear six million Jews and millions of people genocide and these these words, yeah, you know it's really bad. But it's hard to grasp the weight of it that it wasn't just a few bad Nazis that did something. We're talking about a regime, a government, and then alliances with other countries that we now look at as our own allies in the United States. Countries like Italy, you know, how could you think of Italian, the Italian government joining and becoming an ally with Nazi Germany? The public turning as well, not just one uh, fringe political party that took power into their hands, but they were very, it was it was too easy for them to convince the public to join them and help them persecute Jews and others. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget the, the communists and uh, Roma and uh, Slavs, Poles, you know, some, some other folks here uh, as well, but that they were so quick and willing to help this Nazi group come over and start to uh, systematically try to eradicate a people it's and in modern history, Ush. I mean, this yeah. is this is not ancient exactly. history. This is as we talk about seventy-five years ago. Kublitz for podcast listeners and those on YouTube who obviously they hear broadly speaking about the Holocaust. But let's just uh, talk a little bit about Auschwitz in particular because this was, as I read, you know, really forty-eight kind of buildings, we'll say, in this large camp in a, in a German annexed part of Poland, and always described as the worst mass murder scene in world history. Talk a little bit about it for those who just may well, not be well you know, here's one th- what we're marking. Right. And these are the stories that the survivors um, were sharing with us in these pieces, and I don't think you can hear them enough. And sometimes there's a tendency to look away from such horror, but I'm really glad that they gave us the details. And I don't even think I want to get into the, the worst of the worst, but mm. there's there's plenty to say w- without even going there, mm-hmm. uh, such as a woman, Ray Kaner. She lives in Manhattan. She survived Auschwitz. And she tells me about arriving. And she was a teenager. Okay, it's a teenage girl. She's already had her future stripped away because first the Jews were rounded up in these towns, sent to a ghetto where they were enslaved, essentially. And then they get on trains, not knowing where they're going. The, you know, first of all, no access to media in the way we think of it now. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of what Nazi Germany was doing at the time was just unknown to a lot of people until later. So now they end up at this camp, and they see a big sign, and they, you know they, they they're looking around and trying to figure out what's going on. There's chimneys, and they see smoke coming out of it, and they arrive, and then people start getting separated. And this woman tells the story of a number of the children in her group from her town who she knew getting pulled to the side. The cries, I can hear them. The cries and the pleading. She didn't know where they were going, and then later she, she realizes they were getting sent to a gas chamber where they were killed, and their bodies burned in a crematorium. And it's hard to even say it out loud, but this poor teenage girl witnessed that and had to continue on. She said, if I could have killed myself, I would have, because it was so hard to see this with my own two eyes. While we were there, we didn't know what these chimneys What's going on with the flames and, and smoke? We didn't realize these are the people burning that we came with. If I would have a pill or something, because we were speaking about this, I would have committed suicide. And the other thing about Auschwitz that I want to bring up 
is we're celebrating, you know, honoring, I should say, right. the anniversary of the liberation. Liberation. And, and for some people, the liberation is a rebirth. It's a time to, to reflect on uh, a, a happy time because it meant the end of the suffering in Auschwitz. Did you have someone who said that that person started recording their birthday as the day of liberation? What a wonderful that in your story. story? Yeah, Jacqueline, yeah. Jacqueline Kibblesteel. Yeah. From, uh, she was in France. She hid out in France during the Holocaust right. and was able to survive. Her husband went to Auschwitz and she tells me every single year on that date, January 27th, she and her husband celebrated their birthday. That wasn't their birthday. That was the liberation of Auschwitz. Yeah. But they treated it as if it was their birthday. And I said to her, oh, as if. And she said, no, no, it was our birthday. That's our birthday. So I, I did a, I wrote up something recently that one of our photogs shot. He went out to a high school, Edward R. Murrow in Brooklyn, where there's an elective class on the Holocaust. Do we think the world has learned the lessons of the Holocaust? And we could argue a little bit on both sides. And if there was anything uplifting to me, that's the number of students who signed up for the class. And I don't mean just Jewish students, all students, because they say they want to learn about it. And on occasion, some survivors, those who are left and are able to, will go and speak to them. A, I'm always struck that they would actually put themselves to relive through the horror, but they feel it's a responsibility. And B, if there can be anything encouraging is that young people are listening and still want to know. It's not only a learning experience, it's an emotional experience also. You get, you actually, you can feel how these people felt, even by not doing anything or just by hearing about it, you can feel their pain and their struggles. Yeah, and I'm really impressed by those survivors that are willing to do it. Not all of them are, right. and I respect that. I, sure. My own grandparents, uh, many of them wanted to keep it very private and couldn't speak a word of it. My wife's grandfather, who, uh, I mean, as I'm putting this story together about Auschwitz and survivors and how that number of first-person witnesses is shrinking, my wife's grandfather, who is an Auschwitz survivor, he passed away while I'm working on the story. 92 years old. He didn't want to talk about it. You know, he, he had done some, some stuff with class, uh, with groups before. Uh, his wife is a survivor as well, and she's still alive in her 90s in Israel. She doesn't want to talk about it. And that's fair, and you have to respect that. But I'm so thankful for the ones who are willing to do it uh, because there's an appetite to understand and learn from history so that it doesn't repeat itself. Um, but what happens, this is the question, what happens now when at the 85th anniversary of the liberation or the 90th anniversary of the liberation and there aren't any survivors left, how is this message, is it going to be as powerful? Are people going to be able to silence the deniers without having the first person account? And that's where the other part of our story was so important. The Holocaust Museum comes in and says, mm -hmm. we're going to gather these artifacts and we're going to put them not just at the museum in D.C. or at Yad Vashem in Israel. These are going to go online, digital. We're going to get on social where young people are consuming information and we're going to put it out there for the world to see. Mm. And it's not as good as a first-person account having a survivor face-to-face -face with you in a classroom, right. but it's pretty close. It really is. And you lead me to my next point. That's kind of where I want to leave it for you and I as reporters in the city, as fathers of young children. I had occasion this week, as did our colleague Andrew Siff, as you have, to go down to the Museum of Jewish Heritage to yeah. have a battery place. It's currently an Auschwitz exhibit. It'll last through August. And there you do have some of the artifacts. It is haunting to be in the presence of some of the, 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 the possessions of those who are who are at Auschwitz, um, but a number of religious leaders were taking a tour, a private mm -hmm. tour, 
Among them was Reverend Herbert Daughtry, longtime civil rights minister here in Brooklyn, who's been on the struggles of civil rights here and abroad. He has been to Auschwitz to visit. He was at the museum that day. He talked about humankind's inhumanity. He referenced slavery, the 400th anniversary last year, and then he referenced the Holocaust. And I leave it, or we leave it here, the point we heard, Coop, was that any act of um, bigotry, uh, homophobic, uh, against blacks, anti-Semitic, any kind of act is really an extension in the way of the Holocaust hate. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I think um, the parallel for someone whose family has been affected by slavery mm-hmm. and the family who's affected by the Holocaust is actually this is an important point, I think, in teaching. And here's why. If you can have, if let's say somebody has been very fortunate, and and look, I, I'm a third generation mm-hmm. Holocaust survivor. I am very fortunate, and I grew up, and yeah, my family was affected. But as we continue on, my kids are less affected, and their children will be less affected by it. And eventually, you know, it it, it starts to be more distant. But I think the way to have people who aren't connected relate is to show them on a personal level how families were ripped apart, and sl- and that's why the lessons of slavery. I was just in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. learning about some of that firsthand where these plantations were, where slaves were, were, were you know, dying uh, and doing this slave labor. And I, and I think when you see it and you hear about somebody your own age, if you're a child, a 12-year-old who instead of going to school and, and today you'd be playing video games right. and worrying about what's right. on YouTube or dating, instead of that, uh, this teenager I talked to in Auschwitz was, you know, f- on a death march and watched her mother get taken away from her and Never murdered, her. you know. Yeah. And, and if you hear it like that and you can put yourself in their shoes, I just think it's a little bit more, it, it's harder to think, well, that couldn't happen to me. And or that's, again. Or couldn't happen again. But when you, see it, when you see it on that level, I think there's some parallels there. Or even, even farther down the line when I hear my dad talk about, yeah, growing up when it was time for a holiday, we didn't have a lot of family there because... Most of the family was killed in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And that's a simple little thing. But you, you and I now, we're lucky. We get together uh, mm-hmm. Easter or Passover, mm-hmm. and it's a big family get-together. Mm-hmm. But the people who suffered through something like slavery or like the Holocaust, it took a long time to lost, get over that. Lost generations. Yeah, lost generations just wiped off the face of the earth for really no good reason. Well, I will tell you that one of those high school students that I wrote about and one of the uh, survivors that you talked to said in different words, but they said essentially the same thing, that little microaggressions or these isolated incidents can fester and grow into something much larger before we know it. And that's what I think everyone has to remember. Yeah, and we need to be on the lookout for it and do whatever we can to fight it and educate folks so that it does not happen again and don't think that just because we're in this modern world, they thought they were plenty modern they did. in Europe, in Western Europe, in the 1930s. Coop, thank you. Adam Cooperstein. Thank you. Uh, great stuff this week. We thank you for joining us. We thank our producers, Jesse Edwards, Ben Berkowitz, and Harrison Choi of the Debrief Production Team. I'm your host, David Ushery, coming from our busy newsroom. We'll see you next time.